So as we come to chapter 10, we left off with David being established and showing that kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, which is a really cool way to end chapter 9, and it's, it's there. So chapter 10 picks up with this. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent out by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon, that's modern Jordan, and the prince of the people, the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, just wait at Jerusalem until your beards have grown, then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zopah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rahab, Ishtab, and Makkah were themselves in the field. When Joab saw the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people who he put under his command, he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the Assyrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and all the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shokbah, the commander of Hadadazer's army, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came to Helam, and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings were servants, were the servants of to Hazadazar, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Amnon anymore. Now, this chapter is fairly similar to one we had just a couple chapters ago when David was established as the king over 12 tribes. We have a whole chapter where essentially he's fighting the Philistines. He fights them once. He fights them twice. People test you when you come to leadership. People test. Just because you put deal something one time doesn't mean they're not going to test you a second time and see what they can do. And David's leadership is being tested. His kingdom's being tested. His army's being tested. His resolve is being tested. And he has to fight these battles, and they're not battles he really wanted, which is something that, of course, stands out to us in this chapter. You go back to the very beginning of this chapter. David's motives are good motives. This is a man with the heart for God. It, this statement is, it's really cool. Like, 
This chapter ends with tens of thousands of people being killed in war. But it begins with, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. This has to get our attention. It reminds us that we should presume the best in others and presume the best in a situation. It is always better to look at a situation and see the best in it and hope for the best from it. Because the Bible says it, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, and that love hopes all things. And it's much better to go through life looking at a situation and seeing the best in that situation and the potential for the best of it and wanting to bless that situation to make it a better situation than it was. And in this case, this new king has lost his dad. He's grieving. When you lose a parent, he's grieving. And David's like, hey, his dad was good to me. David had all kinds of enemies, but his dad was a friend. His friend was an ally. And isn't it better to make allies than adversaries? Yeah? I mean, if... You can, and they're, they're not the wrong kind of friends. You don't sell your soul to make friends, but it's much better to have friends and, and allies than adversaries when you don't have to. I often wonder how many enemies we have because we've made those enemies when they could otherwise have been at least uh, copacetic advocates that we could dwell peacefully with. How many people have na- conflicts in their neighborhood because they chose to make neighbors enemies instead of finding a way to just peacefully resolve things and try and get along in the neighborhood and keep the peace as best they could in a reasonable way. Now, obviously, some people aren't reasonable, but you certainly should be because you're coming to church on Tuesday night and you're in the Bible taught. So one reasonable person or woman, a man or woman, can help that situation get better. I just love that David wanted to show kindness. And isn't that a great disposition? In a world where very few people really want to show kindness right now, And it's generally not there in us. We might say we want to be kind, but most of us are extremely selfish. And the ministry of the Spirit is to make us less selfish. But to really show kindness and empathy, these are the greatest things you can do. Like if you really are a human being confessing Christ as Lord, and it's your disposition to see and think the best in a situation and want to bring blessings to that situation and bring kindness to it, well, blessed are we on the day of Christ Jesus. Yes and amen, right? Because the other the only terms would be like to think like to throw people under the bus and be judge and jury of them, which is exactly Jesus said not to do. So we want to look at a situation and go like, wow, that guy's dad was like really good to me. I want to bless him. I'm going to send my best messengers and like, hey, shalom, shalom, peace. Let's, man, we're sorry. We're, we're, we're sincerely sorry. We're coming to your dad's memorial. Like that kind of a thing. And that's where David's at. So props to David. Good for David. That's what a heart for God, he, he has a heart for God. That's what a heart for God looks like. You see the best in a situation, you're hoping for the best in a situation, and you're speaking life and bringing life and kindness into that situation. It doesn't always have the ending we want. Obviously, it didn't in this chapter, but still, that's how we want to start that situation. Because if we end up in a situation where charioters are getting killed and everyone's, you know, horses get hamstrung and stuff like that, before you get to that place of all-out war, you'd like to know that you started in the place of hoping for the best, seeing the best, and bringing the best, and thinking kind thoughts toward people who eventually become enemies that you never wanted to be your enemies. So props to David and props to the disciples of Jesus Christ, men and women who choose to show kindness and see the best in a situation. Now, this guy, oh, Hanan. So, and Hanan, his son, reigned, and the dad was Nahash. So let's think about this. Hanan's going to come to power. You're the prince. There might be many princes, but you're the premier prince. Prince, you're the guy. You're, you're the guy. 
You would think if you're going to take over dad's business, and dad's business is a healthy business and a good business, and dad has good business relationships with people like King David and Israel, you might think you'd ask your dad about the relationship with those buyers, those contractors in that company. I'm using modern terminology we can think of here. Your dad was a successful king and ran a very profitable business, and he knew to make David an ally, not an enemy. So you might ask dad before he's on his deathbed, hey, dad, how's it work with you and David? How's that partnership? You know, we have contract agreements. Do we have a treaty? Like, how's it work? Oh, no, it's good. It's peace. Shalom, shalom. Handshake's good with David. Like, you think you want to know that before you strip down his messengers and shave their beards off. You'd think you'd want to know that. Yeah, just go back to what you know is your strength and your liability. What you don't know is your... Uh, excuse me, what you know is your strength and your asset. What you don't know is your liability. That's why Solomon says over and over, knowledge, understanding, wisdom. Get knowledge, know the facts, understand what they mean, and then make the right decision, which is wisdom. But right here, this is pure ignorance. For a guy that's going to run a country and be a king and wear a crown, this is just unbelievable ignorance. This is pride and arrogance and ignorance. Because he could have learned from his dad. All he had to do was ask his dad once, hey, the relationship with David, how's it work? Or, even after dad passed away, and he's thinking about this, let's think this through. David has just conquered everybody, right? We just saw that chapter. He gave everybody a capital B beatdown. So, do you suddenly think, like, you're better than the Philistines or the Edomites and the Amalekites? Amalekites are pretty ruthless. Do you think you can do what they didn't do when you're lifted up? He just didn't think it through. Jesus himself said, what man starts to build a house that didn't consider the cost to finish the house or is going to war and doesn't consider whether or not they can win that war and then settle for peace terms? That's what Jesus taught in the New Testament. This guy is such a warning to us to not be, to not foolishly react quickly without thinking through the facts, what they mean, understand the ramifications of decisions, but to, you know, not to react, but really like we've been saying, to respond to respond, like respond to this situation, not to react to this situation. This is just such a foolish, immature reaction to this situation, and it's so detrimental and counterproductive for his own people. Because by the time we get to a few chapters from now, his people just get completely wiped out, and all he had to do was receive the kindness from David. If he had presumed the best in David... It would have been well with his people, and they would have prospered. But instead, he presumed the worst, and immediately he takes bad counsel from the princes who were there. We see this later on with David after he dies and some of the bad counsel that, well, after Solomon dies, Rehoboam gets bad counsel from his counselors. He doesn't use the counselors that Solomon had. He uses his own counselors that lead him astray. We'll see that later on in Kings. But in this case, this is what we get. So what a warning to think about, to, to, to respond and not react, and to think about whose voices we're listening to and who's giving us counsel, right? Like, who's, who's our influences? Because the voices, that, the voices that we listen to most will shape us, and that's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament that bad company corrupts good morals. So it's really important that we think about who we're hanging out with and which voices are influencing us for our decision-making processes. And this guy did not seek good counsel, did not even, well, seek the Lord at all, obviously, but even just common sense, common sense. We look at this chapter, this guy was lacking common sense, and he didn't even exercise common sense 
Then he heeds bad counsel, presumes the worst, and his his response, his reaction instead of response, cost tens of thousands of people their, their lives and their economic strength. Because in this chapter, it says that once he realized that, the, that they caused shame to David, that they're going to be at war, it cost them money. So again, think about this with our decision-making, with bad counsel. If we make quick reaction decisions, hanging out with the wrong people, it can cost us money. That's usually the beginning. Like when you make bad decisions, it'll usually cost you in your pocketbook. When you make bad decisions against the Lord, it'll usually cost you in your pocketbook. Right away, if he just accepted peace and kindness from David, it wouldn't cost him any money. Like all of us in this room, if we would just seek the Lord and heed good counsel, it will generally not cost us money. The Lord will bless us and will prosper. But if we want to hang out with the wrong people, not get good counsel, and the multitude of counsel, wisdom's not lacking, and we want to make hasty, bad, reactive decisions, especially influenced by evil people, it'll usually cost us money. It'll usually cost us money. And in this case, we read in the text that they hired, they had to hire the Syrians. And let me tell you, Syrian armies, Syrian, Syrian armies are not cheap to hire. It'll cost you something, like lawyers, you know? If you could have just resolved it, you, you, you wouldn't need a lawyer. That's why when you go to a court, you even see this in the courts where it, when you go, we mentioned this, when you go to court, Superior Court in Santa Ana, when there's small claims, courts, and disputes, like, hey, arbitrator for rent, you know? Do you want to hire an arbitrator? It'll save you. It's not as much as two lawyers, but let's resolve this as cheap as possible because you cross certain lines, it becomes very costly. And for these guys, it was very costly. It's just too bad that, um, well, we might use a common term. It's just too bad that um, Hanan just didn't stay in his lane. And also the Syrians. The Syrians, you know, they, they think they're ready to just take on David. Like, you think they get the scouting report, too, on King David and his armies. Because so far, King David's armies win everything and never lose anything. And the Syrians come in. It's a good short-term, quick-flip investment. Hey, we show up with 20000 we just deal with this. Ammonites pay us, and it's all good. And then we go home. We make our money. No, they got they got rolled. They got the beat down too, which is a whole other study. But just because it looks like it's a good thing financially doesn't mean it's going to be. You need to consider who your partnerships are with and how they affect us. So great example of David showing kindness, wanting to do the right thing, good motives. Praise the Lord. David's in a good place. This prince, this new king, his people, the people who hire, they're all just like, Bad, bad, bad. Bad to worse in their decision-making. So it's a good lesson to us. Think the best. That's what the people with a heart for God do. And learn from the, the lessons of the Ammonites. Just, man, think it through. Think it through. Consider it's the best. Don't be hasty. And just don't heed bad counsel. Don't be quick to react. And don't hire the wrong people to associate with you. What a disaster for the enemies of God in that chapter. Chapter 11, we read on. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite was one of David's 30 mighty men. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, I am with child. 
Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was prospered, how the war had prospered. And David said, Uriah, now, now go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go to my house, eat and drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said, Uriah, wait here today, and also I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And who struck Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubalasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in uh, Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? And, of course, that story we read about in the book of Judges a few months ago. Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David that, that all that Joab had said by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword, shall de- the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had displeased the Lord, what David had done. So chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is actually, I mean, a pretty well-known chapter in the Bible for sure. Most of us that are familiar with the Bible and the Old Testament and the life of David, we're familiar with the story of David, Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, and the events that played out and the things that happened so I, I would think that most of you know the story. If not, you now know it. So this is the blemish on David's life. These events would be far-reaching in his life. And really, chapters 9 and 10 are like the apex of everything going good for David as a king. And from this point on, it's just, there's stuff that's unpleasant. But even for the most obedient people, you live to be 80 years, in his case, 70. Things are going to happen one way or another that you have no control over. But it's better to have them happen, not because you were disobedient and its consequences of your actions, which is the case with David as we go forward in this book. So we pick this story up. The essential thing we see where it all goes wrong for David in this chapter is that in the time of spring, when the kings, the time of the year when kings go to battle, he didn't go. He remained in Jerusalem. 
Verse 1 really gets our attention, and this is the key. And this is usually how bad things happen. This is the beginning of our downfall. This is the beginning of mistakes. This is the beginning where sin can be conceived, as it says in the book of James, and it just grows, and it brings its birth, and then it brings forth death. And that's exactly what it did for David. Because it says, the text implies, that when kings go out to battle, he sent someone else. It's always too early to retire. Now, obviously, people retire from their jobs, and they change careers, and we retire into various capacities. I actually spoke with someone last night who just recently retired from a career job with uh, Southern California Edison, right? So I just talked to someone who's like a little bit older than me, and I was asking him questions. And he, had all, he had all the answers about Social Security, you know, Medicare. The kind of, you know, you younger people are like, what? Just believe me, you'll someday ask those questions. I'm like, hey, this guy's already done it all, so I'm going to ask him questions about his Social Security, Medicare, and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very interesting conversation, and he is retired. Even the other night at church, after service, I spoke with someone about events going on, and the particular man said, well, I just recently retired. And so his wife's still working, but he retired. And you're like, well, that, that's it's kind of like an American ideal that you can retire. But we know from examples of people like Pastor Chuck Smith and others that you can retire, but you never really retire. You never really take a vacation from life because there's still things to be done in our life when you belong to the Lord. And really, as a human being, my... My cousin Katie, I mentioned my blind cousin's Kurt and Kate. Katie retired a few years back, and it drove her nuts, and she had to go back to work. And so she works still like six hours a day helping uh, blind people with their jobs and their benefits and all these different things, and she loves doing it. And she, she just said, oh, Joey, it drove me nuts not working. Because one of the things that you do with not working can be idle time. And when you're working, they go, okay, I, can't just, I cannot just wait to have idle time. To just go surf Sunset Cliffs or whatever, Huntington Cliffs, and just go serve churches, whatever, like, just to, ah, you know, like, just to be able to cruise, but, like, it's kind of like when you ditch school. Most of you don't know what that's like, but I know quite well that's like, you ditch school for one day when the source could like, oh, man, like, I was a naughty boy, but it was pumping, but when it becomes a pattern that you're ditching school, like, you just feel like you should be at school. You just feel like, I, I, this is not like, there's things to do. God has designed us, well, first of all, we're told in Genesis before the sin in the garden that God appointed in Adam and Eve work to do in the garden. They had responsibilities before the fall, and they had responsibilities after the fall of sin. And obviously, we slow down. When you're young, you're strong. When you're older, you're changing strength for wisdom. In the middle ground there, you can have strength and wisdom, but you begin to lose physical strength and energy, but you should be gaining wisdom. That's why I say, you know, I know in my 60s I can get better at dancing. In my 70s I'll take up golf. I can only get better because I'm terrible at golf. I can only get better. And then in my 80s I'll play chess. So I'll be my mind, keep my mind sharp, crossword puzzles, speak in Russian fluently. Uh, even if no one even understands me, I'll, I'll know. Nyet, 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 da, da, da. You know, like, we got it. Uh, right? Like, just things, you, you know, like how it works. How it works. It just it goes a certain way. We want to always keep about business. I always thought it interesting with the Charlie Brown, Peanuts, Charlie Brown, that Charles Schultz, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, that the last day he had committed, he was finally going to retire from Charlie Brown writing the Peanuts script. And many of you grew up with Peanuts in your Orange County Register, Los Angeles Times, Senegal Union. I always read, I grew up with the newspaper, the Senegal Union. I always read the comics. And that the day he retired was the day he died. He was done. 
Charles Schultz wrote his last Charlie Brown, Peanuts, and then he stepped into eternity. Then, like that day or was the next day, he was done. He went to the very last day. Pastor Chuck, the week he died, when he's dying of lung cancer, he's in the pulpit teaching his last Bible study for 30 minutes with an oxygen tank. And when it was happening, you thought, what is that all about? But after it happened, you're like, I know what that was all about. That's like getting across the finish line like a triathlon or a triathlete. No matter what it takes, you're going to cross that finish line. And you're not done until you're done until you're done. David's problems here is that He's way too young to be hanging out in the palace with idle time. But, you know, money, power, women, all those things, they can do that. They'll do that to you. And that's what happened to David. For so, many, for so long he was taking women he shouldn't have been taking. So he'd already established a pattern of going after women they shouldn't be going after. That's a problem. So it was, his defenses were already kind of worn down in that area. Because so, as a king, he pretty much took any woman he wanted, and we've seen that he's done that. Not a lot, but he took women he wanted. He's just like, I'm the king, I can do that. But this is the woman he can't take. So it's a perfect storm. Like, we're told that Satan, when he departed from Jesus, that he departed to an opportune time. And we know he goes about like a roaring lion to destroy us. And where we're set up for a fall is where we've compromised and we've gotten away with stuff for a prolonged period of our life, and we're like, well, we've gotten away with it, we've gotten away with it, we've gotten away with it. And it's like, well, okay, so we've got this under control. But we never have our pride and flesh, the devil and the world under control, right? We all know that. Like, I might think it, you might think it, but we never, either we rule, either the spirit rules over the flesh or the flesh rules over us. There's no ambiguity in that one. And this, were, this was the weakness, this was the weakness. In the game film of David's life, if Satan's looking at David's life, he's like, this is where he's weak women and he gets the women he wants this is where he's vulnerable okay so now we just need him to have idle time where he's not where he doesn't wake up with goals and vision and direction and he's just kind of meandering so we're going to take idle time and we're going to put it with women and that too right there that's the perfect storm and we're not just anyone but a beautiful woman a married woman and man he's we're going to bring him down that's exactly what happened he walked into a perfect trap but the real foundation of it was not even so much that he got away with the women he wanted to get because those women weren't married. So you can't say in that, that sense of adultery, it wasn't that kind of adultery. But this, this is straight up stealing another man's wife and having the man murdered. This is as bad as it gets. But it all began when he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And this is why it's so important, WG, body of Christ, that we seek the Lord every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how every day needs to start. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to us. Our day needs to start with seeing Abba Father and his holiness over our life, inviting him to be over our life, asking him to direct our life, and realizing he's the provider, the protector, and the presence of our life. That's how we have to start. And if Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. So we need to abide, and as we seek the Lord, and we get after the Lord, we're going to have direction and purpose. So we can never change our past, so we learn from the past. We can't change it, but we learn from the past. Forgetting what lies behind, we press on to what lies ahead, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. But the past is real, and we learn from our past. Our past is our resume. It's our resume of successes, and it's our resume of failures. So we learn from the past, but we cannot live in the past. So we wake up today, we have today, and we have a sense of 
this is the plan for the day. This is the, the most important thing of the day. This is the next thing on this project. This is the plan. This is where it's at. Well, I told you this. For me, I have the, the, before I go to bed, I have the next day mapped out, like 6 to 10 a.m., 10 a.m. to 2, 2 to 4, 4 to 7, depends on what's going on that day. And through the course of the day, these are the most important things. So it's the big five. Every morning is the big five. That's morning devotion and some other stuff, uh, some extra readings. That's big five in the morning. Remind myself of my life goals before I, before I even start anything. Before I eat breakfast, before I brush my teeth and all that kind of stuff, like to really go out on the day and face the world. I mean, it's like morning devotion and reminding myself what my life is all about. And that way I'm like, you know, I have direction and purpose. I'm not meandering around the palace going like, well, I wonder what's going on in, in uh, Emden. And wow, look at that. Wow. Like, you know, there's no time for that. We're told to redeem the time for the days are evil. And if we wake up and we're with the Lord and we remind ourselves what our plan is today and getting after it, we are not going to have time for, we're not going to have idle time and for folly and foolishness. And the more you value your days and the more you redeem your days, the more you realize how precious they are. Yes and amen, especially for those that are older. When you're talking about stuff in your 60s, you young people, let me tell you, you're talking about like it's the fourth quarter. We're not talking about like we're in the first half of a football game and we're just figuring out our offensive schemes. When I'm talking about my future, I am in the second half. And I'm 60. Like I'm like those guys in a football game holding up four fingers when it's the start of the fourth quarter. My, my vision and goal is not like, hey, I'm 20, here's my career chart. I'm like, my vision is finish strong, pass on the legacy. That's it. That's the fourth quarter. Like, don't turn the ball over. Control the tempo of the game and just get it done. That's it. And up until the last day, idle time is idle time. And even when I'm confused down the stretch, if I'm fuzzy in my 90s, I want to wake up and I'm just going to have it so ingrained in my DNA that it's the smallest portion of my brain is still working properly. It's going to say, what are we doing today? We're seeking the Lord. What are we doing next? We're going to pray for the person in that room next to us or the bed right across from us. That's where I want to be if I don't know what's going on on planet Earth in 2041. And by the way, that's where you want to be too. Because the alternative to that is not good. If you're 80 or 90 and you're something other than that, if you're 80 or 90 and you don't wake up seeking the Lord, and you don't wake up with a vision for what God's doing in your life, let me tell you, hanging out with very old people on a regular basis, that's not what you want. And the more you establish a pattern of seeking the Lord every day, having a vision for the day, an overall vision for where you're going with the big picture, the better off it's going to serve you for life and eternity. And I've just told people this quite a bit lately. Listen, if we go down, if I go down, it's all over. I had a good plan. I'm going down with a good plan. I'm serving the Lord today, and I've got a good plan for tomorrow, a plan for the kingdom for all eternity, and a plan to bless my children and children's children for the things of the kingdom and eternity. I'm leaving a good plan behind. And that way of evil government or good government, any government in between takes everything I've worked for, I got a good plan. And it comes from the Lord, and it goes back to the Lord. The Lord give it, the Lord take it, blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm, I'm seeking the Lord today. I've got a plan for today. And if he wants to blow up the plan, that's fine. We'll get up tomorrow and rebuild like ants when you wipe out their little ant city. Because that's what we're called to do with the kingdom. David lost vision for the purpose of the day with the Lord. And David lost vision for the kingdom expanding and what he was called to do. And so he didn't go out and do what kings do. He decided to take a permanent vacation or an indefinite vacation. And that idle time 
would prove to be something he would greatly regret. Idle time is the advocate and the tool of the devil. And it's just a reminder to us that we want to just be active. Not be busy just to be busy. You don't work just to work, but you work to, you work to be efficient. So, hey, the day belongs to the Lord. So what's the big picture of what God's doing? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What's, the, what's, he, what's he putting on your heart? Like, what's the plan of action, POA? What's the plan of action for my life? Where are we going? For the people without a vision perish. So where are we going? Write the vision, make it plain, so he who reads it can run with it. Write your vision to you so you can read it and make it plain so you can run with it. You miss every target that you don't know what you're shooting for. So seek the Lord, delight in the Lord, and figure out what he's showing you're doing with life, and have your target and be aiming in that direction. That's your plan of action. Most important thing is the most important thing to get toward what God's showing you. And the next thing is the next step. Because we only need faith for the next step. You and I will never need faith for two steps. Just the next step. Isn't that wonderful? You ever watch toddlers learn to walk? I've been watching Bonbon learn to walk the last four weeks. Grandchild number six, Bonnie. Bonbon. What? You know, you see him every three or four days, right, with toddlers? Up, down, up, down, crash, burn, crawl, crawling like a crab, the crab walk. And then all of a sudden he's up, a few more steps, and now he's just, he's just walking. One step at a time, we only need the faith, and we're only held accountable for the faith to take the next step. So God, help us and encourage us to be living by faith and not kicking back in the palace with idle time, setting ourselves up to get rolled by the devil. Because this, that was just... Everything goes wrong in the rest of this chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is because in the time of spring when kings go to battle, this great king did not. And the rest of the chapter is a chain reaction of not doing that. So let it be an exhortation to us to stay on point and to stay on track and keep getting after everything God has for us. So it seemed like he got away with it. His phrase there in verse 25, for the sword devours one as well as another. Oh my goodness, how heavy is that statement coming from his own mouth? for what he would face for the next couple decades of his life. As he spoke it, so it came to pass. Chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had, he had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children, it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and laid in his bosom. It was, like a, it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd and to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also had given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Amnon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you and your own house, and I will, give, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because of this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So this is the consequence. Thou art the man. And those of you who have long enough, boy, you really like to have the Lord correct you privately, don't you? You know, you're so like, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I, I can speak from my own life. It is so much better to have a tender heart to the Lord and to ask the Lord to forgive us. And then he's like, hey, you know, you handled that wrong or you need to call them and say you're sorry. That is so much better than those moments in life when the Holy Spirit pins you down through someone else and says, thou art the man. Those experiences when you are reproved through human beings, if you're sensitive to the Lord, and you let God, well, first of all, you avoid these kind of things in the first place. But if you make these things right with the Lord, it's so much better to proactively make things right with the Lord by being tender to the Lord. Of course, sin hardens our heart, which makes it almost paradoxical. But still, it's better if you receive it because just it is just the, oh, it's just the worst when you've charted a, a wrong course for a period of time. And you just have that thou art the man moment. You don't need to raise your hands, but if you're living for the Lord long enough, you've had... Thou art the woman moments, and thou art the man moments. Just like, oh, man, such a bummer. It's just such a bummer when the Holy Spirit says, you're the man, you're the woman. It's like, oh. But that's a key moment. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit said that to Saul. The Holy Spirit says that to a lot of people in the Bible. And they don't receive it. But the woman of God the woman with a heart after God will receive it. So will the man with a heart after God. They will receive it. They'll receive reproof and correction. The book of Proverbs, apart from warning us to stay away from foolish people, it tells us repeatedly to be te- coachable, teachable. I say coachable because I think it's a coach, but you know what I say, they're coachable, they're not coachable. To be teachable, to be correctable. Open reproof is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful the wounds of a friend. Deceive proper kisses of an enemy. Like this is, we need to be receiving on that end. And in David's worst moment of his life, where he condemned himself, he's the man and he receives it. He receives it. Psalm 51, the famous psalm, where David pours out his heart to the Lord. He says, I was born in iniquity, and my mother brought me forth in iniquity. And he said, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. We're told in the introduction to Psalm 51, this is the song he sang to the Lord after this event happened. So you might look at that later on if you're interested. But Psalm 51 is the context of what he was, how he responded before the Lord in these events. And he, that's what's like, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Sacrifice is an offering you did not desire. Like David's like, it's not like I need to bring a bunch of bulls and goats to the temple or the tabernacle. What I need to do is be broken. A contrite spirit is what the Lord wants right now because otherwise you're just religious, right? Like some people, they do great sin. They don't really repent of the sin. They live in their sin. They come to church and they do their church thing and they never really like get it right. Like they serve in the church. They tie, they do whatever. They didn't get it right. That's not what the Lord's interested in, religion and church business. He's interested in a broken heart over sin, a repentant heart 
humility and brokenness, that you're going to be a better version of you on planet Earth, even though you're crushed by your failures. And even though people are stumbled by your sin, because they were in this case, and by your sin it happens, but that in the end, what they choose to do and blame about blame before the Lord on the day of Christ Jesus because of you and your sin is between them and the Lord. But what you choose to do with your sin is between you and the Lord. So we can't help it when we blow it. If people want to blame us, and they're going to they're going to blame us on the day of Christ Jesus. Well, they were my dad. They were my mom. They were my my brother, my sister. They were my pastor, my pastor's wife, whatever. They, listen, people are going to blame a lot of people. Think they're going to blame a lot of people on the day of Christ Jesus. And a lot of people are going to have an excuse, step into eternity, thinking why they're going to stand before the Lord and give an excuse why they rejected Jesus Christ. And they might blame someone who's a Christian for stumbling them. But know this, they're not going to stand or fall on your failure or my failure. They're going to stand or fall on the blood of Jesus Christ. Are in the Lamb's Book of Life through faith? Or the book's open because they rejected Christ through unbelief and sin? Excuses are right there with uh, opinions. The cheapest commodity on planet Earth. Everyone's got one. There's no excuses on the day of Christ Jesus before the throne of God. There are zero Zero excuses. So as much as we don't want to be stumbled, as much as a bummer when we see people get stumbled by Christians who fall from grace and things like that, them going forward between them and the Lord and what people think of it is going to be between them and the Lord as well. Obviously, we don't want to stumble anybody, but it needs to be said. No one's going to be cast out of the kingdom because they can blame it on someone's failures during time, space, and matter that confess Christ. They'll be cast out of the kingdom for their own sin in rejecting Christ. Christ alone, the gospel message, not being stumbled by someone who loved Jesus and had a bad day or a bad year. But God said they're stumbled because of you and you affect them that way. David said in Psalm 32 that his bones rotted within him when his sin was concealed. So it would stand that Psalm 32 probably is related to this. So he was living this lie for almost a full year through the third trimester, and then it's just like, there it is. He doesn't have to live the lie anymore. God, God has done him a favor, really, because it's brought to a head. He's confessed it. He's going to be chastened, and it's like, well, where do we go from here? And he... He received correction. So the great lesson of Nathan coming to David is, however God frames it, that it'll break us, let it break us. Because he gave Nathan a story that would, break, that would frame it such a way that David would receive it and be broken. We want to be broken. Sin must break us. And if there's one great thing that can come from sin, is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And if we are truly broken from sin and we're humbled by sin, and we're a better version of who we're meant to be with less pride and arrogance going forward, especially religious pride and arrogance, it is much better for the church of Jesus Christ, for the people we love, and planet Earth. And that is what happened with David. So Nathan had departed. Now we pick it up in verse, well, the verse continues on, verse 15 continues on. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and laid all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. 
And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground. washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house. And, and when he requested that they set food before him, he ate. And then his servants said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went went into her intimately and lay with her. And so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord, which means beloved of the Lord. This is an amazing story, and this really shows us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, because this is as bad as sin gets. Adultery with a married woman, murder of her husband, and then the loss of the child. And this child, this child couldn't live. It just, it just, it just couldn't happen. The child was going to be a reminder to everyone of David's sin and his failure. It, this child was going to just... The Lord was merciful. But it reminds us, if God wants to take a child, that's one thing. If people take a child, that's a whole other one. So God took the child. We've had people in this room, the Lord's taken children from us. And um, whether it's children or people we love, like my mom, when I think of my mom still, recently one of the Chilean servers I worked with doing the Chilean national team posted they lost his mom last week. And mom was young too, pretty young, like 40-ish. He didn't, he didn't really say why, but, you know, all the comments of all the Chilean servers, I know they're all adults now. You know, they're all grown up and in their 20s. And, and I thought, oh, man, it's be so crushing when you lose your mom, especially, you know, I lost my mom when she was 85, right? And I was 59. But this is the reality about people we love when they step into eternity because we've lost husbands and wives, children, adult children, parents, people we love. The journey of life is a journey, the longer you go, people you love step into eternity before you. And I've seen this in life in general, just as a human being, and I've seen this in life as a pastor, that some people quit living when someone dies. Some people just shut it down and they never go forward from it. And to be honest, it usually happens with children. When people lose children, the statistics are mind-bending how many marriages are destroyed when a child dies. The statistics are so high. Very few marriages can handle losing a child, like both my marriage and Sam and Joanna's marriage. Me and Jennifer, we've lost a child. Sam and Joanna have lost children. Others I know in this church have lost children. Uh, I think of Brian and Heidi Jameson losing their nine-year-old daughter to cancer. Very, the odds are so because people just, they shut it down and they can't live. They just, they, they shut it down. And David here is a beautiful example of how to handle 
the worst day of your life when your child dies or your mom dies or the people you love die, your spouse dies. Eternity is eternity, and they're gone. And there's nothing we're going to do that's ever going to bring them back from eternity. So we need to have the thoughts in our hearts of the value of their life, how much we love them, how much we miss them, the legacy of their life for good or whatever. You, you never want to remember the bad. I don't remember the bad anymore with anybody. I don't want to. I just remember the good. Everything's framed good. You know, if you look for good, like I said, you look for good, you find good. You just see good. In the New Testament, talking about David, it's only good. You never hear bad about David, only good. That's how the Lord sees it. But you can't bring him back. It's like John Corson, you know, losing his wife, then losing his daughter, then losing his son. And we just have to decide, are we going to live by faith in the land of the living and go forward with what God has for us, or are we going to shut it down? You cannot shut it down, but trust me, a lot of people do. They're never the same. We cannot, in Jesus' name, let death shut down life in us. The death of loved ones going before us cannot shut down the life of Christ going onward from us. We have to find our comfort in the Lord. We have to find our strength in the Lord. And we need to go forward with the Lord, looking unto Jesus. And we will be with loved ones soon enough, for life is but a vapor. So we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And like David, we can say, that son is never coming back to us. My son, your mom, your wife, your son, your parent, they're not coming back. They are not coming back to time, space, and matter. But we are going, like David said, where they are. We are going to eternity where they are. And so what we need to do with life in the land of the living is live our life with the joy of the Lord, the abundant life of the Lord, with the light that is found only in Christ, and to always go forward, onward, and upward and fulfill our purposes while we're still here because they've gone because their time is done, but we're here because ours is not. And that should quicken us all the more to redeem the time and fulfill fully what we are still here to do. And no matter how much the grief and sorrow is, we need to wake up, seek the Lord, have a plan of action, know what the most important thing is, and the next step is, and get on with living life. Because once it's done, it's done. We need to keep going forward. And I tell the story of Brian Jameson, whose daughter's memorial I did, and many of you were at. And it was two years ago during COVID when he was doing ministry in Haiti, in a near-death experience where the Lord just delivered them. They were, they were going to get killed. You know, it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world. They're going to get killed, and God delivered them. And he said in that deliverance that that very moment, the Lord restored a piece of his heart that he lost when his daughter died. And he said for eight years, it was just gone. Like it was just gone, like a missing limb, you know, like the phantom limb. Like Bethany Hamilton talks about, the girl who lost her arm to the shark, she talks about the phantom limb. You feel like it's there, but it's not. And Brian said it was like he lost something in his heart, but he went forward and he, and he moved on. And now his other daughter just graduated high school this year, Sarah. But he said the Lord restored that. So what if Brian hadn't chosen to live? 
What if Brian and Heidi had just done what so many people do when they lose a nine-year-old, just get divorced and live in misery and sorrow the rest of their life and suppress all that hurt? What if they hadn't let the Lord heal them and bring them through it? What if they hadn't trusted in giving their daughter to the Lord in eternity and accepting life going forward in time without her? What if they hadn't embraced that? They would have missed all the ministry. They would have missed all the things that God has with it for them with their other children. And they would, have, they would have never known the joy of something restored. Now, you may lose something. We may lose something that God never restores. That's between us and the Lord, between you and the Lord. But isn't it beautiful to think that Brian Jameson, the Lord gave back something that was lost when he lost his oldest daughter? Isn't that a wonderful story? No. Trinity is never coming back to time, space, and matter. But it's nice when God does a good work in the realm of time for those who are still here until they get there. And that's the beauty of the eternal kingdom in Christ Jesus, that death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Christ triumphs over all of it. There is always a future and a hope in Jesus' name, even in the darkest valley. David said it best, He's not coming back. God's going to give us another son. Solomon's amazing. He's not the same. Solomon never replaces the son that you lost, by the way. You need to know that, right? We all know that. No one replaces the loved one that you lost. They're irreplaceable, just like you are. But still, the grace is there. Now, Joab fought against Reba and the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Reba and I've taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together. They went to Reba. They fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. It weight was a town of gold with precious stones. It was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city, great abundance. He brought out the people who were in it. He put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Ammonites were completely destroyed by their knucklehead king. And they all ended up working minimum wage for King David, who was going to hold it against him as long as he was alive. What a tragedy for the Ammonites, right? Just, man. But... Victory came once David was right, and after all that, it'll never be the same for David, but you know what? God gave him future victories. He walks out of the crown. He's got a new son on the way who's going to be the wisest man that ever lived in the human experience, which is a pretty good consolation prize for being a blow-it, right? See, it's always the right thing to do the right thing. It's always the right time to do the right thing. And when there's failure, it's always the right time to repent and make it right. So God can make it right, and you can get the consolation prizes. And really, the consolation prize with King Jesus is always the best prize there is in the journey anyways. So these three chapters are good together because we see how it all affects Ammon Ammon from start to finish. It's a warning. David with his kindness, David with his failures, David with his repentance, and David with another crown of a conquered victory. It's very encouraging. So we, we never want to give up. It's too early to give up. In all of our failures, we just need to receive correction and say, all right, Lord, let's go forward to the next thing. In Jesus' name.